Good morning. I have uh, one more announcement. I forgot to give George. Uh, so Craig Schultz reached out this week, and if you don't know Craig, uh, they were with us a little over a year ago, quite a bit. Uh, Craig and Abby, uh, their whole family, is uh, serving in Kenya. And uh, about a year ago, we had the opportunity to join with uh, Craig and Abby in sponsoring a group of Kenyan pastors from around CORE to go to a pastor's conference in Nairobi. And Craig's followed up several times, and maybe you remember the video of the pastors we sponsored going last year. Craig is asking if we would be willing to partner with them again to send uh, those pastors back to the conference, and Lord willing, some other pastors as well. Uh, He also wanted us to know that uh, quite a bit of fruit has uh, come out of our partnership with them Last year, there are uh, now fellowships of pastors. There's a young man pursuing theological education. It's had some effect on the schools around CORE, the, you know, the, the ripples uh, from that partnership are still being felt, uh, especially in the CORE area. And uh, we would very much like to partner with Craig and Abby again to uh, send whatever uh, pastors... Uh, Craig identifies to the Proclaim Conference in Nairobi. And so I'd like to ask for two things. Number one, that you would be uh, praying for, continue praying for Craig and Abby. If you didn't see their most recent prayer letter, Lana can get you a copy. Uh, and especially, uh, this is I think, come since the prayer letter came out. Continue to pray for Craig as he is reaching out to pastors and trying to draw together a group of pastors to attend this conference together, Uh, but also if you would be interested in helping send those pastors to the conference uh, by giving, uh, if you would uh, put that support in the faith promise box in the back uh, with some note in the memo like uh, Kenya or Craig and Abby or something along those lines, so uh, we know that you intend for it to go to uh, the Schultzes, it would be very much appreciated. And uh, looking forward to hearing how the conference goes and how the Lord works. This morning, we are going to continue in Acts chapter 2 and and around out Peter's sermon. Leave it to a pastor to break one sermon into two sermons, but that's what we've done. Uh, And we... uh, Lord willing, today we'll uh, finish uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and if you weren't with us last week, uh, basically Acts 2 starts with with Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit that uh, every one of the believers, all 120, are indwelt by the Spirit, men, women, young, old, slave, free, that... uh, All are receiving the Spirit, all are inspired by God's Holy Spirit to prophesy God's praises, and as the commotion is spilling into the street and a crowd gathers, the crowd is amazed to witness that everyone prophesying God's praise, or as they're hearing this group prophesy God's praises, they're all hearing it in their native language, and kind of blown away that a group of Galileans could 
know so many languages, like it, it, it seems supernatural. And so Peter stands up in front of this crowd to explain what is happening to them. And he begins uh, essentially by quoting a prophecy from the book of Joel that you should have expected this. God told you that this very thing would happen when the Messiah came. And we stopped last week in verse 21 where uh, Peter concludes uh, Joel's prophecy or a portion of Joel's prophecy by saying uh, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we're going to pick up today in verse 22 where we read, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted and at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that we can gather in worship this morning, Lord, and we pray that uh, as we sing your praises together, God, that you are glorified, that our hearts are 
strengthened. And God, we pray that We pray that even as we sing your praise, God, you would continually bring to our mind the cause of our praise. And in the grace of Christ Jesus, we can come to you as your own children. We pray that our familiarity with this truth would uh, never, uh, never prompt us to lose sight of the the stupendous nature of your grace. God, we pray that as you have given us your son, God, you would continue to draw us to yourself. Lord, we pray that as we sit under your word now, Lord, where our hearts are confronted with sin, we would humble ourselves and repent. Lord, we pray that you would Comfort us by the power of your spirit, God, knowing that Christ's grace covers sin. And we pray that even as our hearts are comforted by your grace, that you would afflict us with uh, a passion to see those who do not yet know Christ come to him in repentance and faith. And we pray that you would continue to use us uh, to advance the gospel, God, both in each other's lives, God, but also in the lives of those we do not yet know. God, we would pray that uh, this would be for your glory, even as we know it's for our good. In Christ's name, amen. I uh, I have to apologize on the front end. I have uh, probably like 5,000 things I want to say. And like uh, on the back of my mind, I know like as we go through Acts together as a church body, like, you know, there are probably lots of questions we could address, say, about baptism. And baptism comes up in today's text. And like now would be a good time to talk about why we practice baptism the way we practice baptism. Uh, but I also know there's like 50 other texts and acts that are going to address baptism. If we don't get it done today, we can do it some other time. But also, you know, uh, if we just keep going and like, uh, we might run out of time. So um, I guess what I'm trying to say in a rather roundabout way is there is no third hour. You might be here till one, but, uh, right. Uh, this text, I think kind of bumps into, uh, several things that I think uh, it would be very helpful for us as a church body to continue to grow in our understanding of or to refine our understanding of. But at the same time, I think there's a one singular thing that comes up in this text that uh, is more important than any other thing. And so probably today, uh, we'll focus on that one thing. But... Uh, as we're looking forward to the fall, and we're not quite sure yet, uh, you know, if we'll be one service or two with the team going to Hickman and all the things. Uh, one thing that has uh, occurred to me, and George and I will talk about, is uh, 
the possibility of a Sunday school about the book of Acts, where maybe more of a discussion format, we can talk about some of the things that come up in the book of Acts and how they affect the life of the church. So uh, if you think something like that would be of interest uh, to you, please absolutely uh, let me know. But uh, this morning, I'd like to uh, walk through this text, and for the most part, I'd like to make the point of Peter's sermon the point of ours. Uh, when Peter transitions in verse 22, he's, he's taken what has been a, a pretty clear prophecy from Joel and demonstrated, or at least hopefully demonstrated, that what they're witnessing, uh, while very supernatural, shouldn't be unexpected. That God foretold that this exact thing would happen at the dawning of the Messianic age, and they should have been expecting it. And they should have been expecting it because in the person of Jesus Christ, there were all kinds of other signs that should have prompted the realization that Jesus is the Messiah that God promised. And so, in verse 22, kind of turn his attention, uh, not to quoting Joel, but then to commenting on the ministry of Jesus. But even as he's commenting on the ministry of Jesus, he's going to fold in some quotes uh, from Psalm 16, Psalm 110. Right? He wants, I think, his audience to understand that he's standing up there and he's, he's saying something very different than what they've been hearing the priests say about Jesus. But, uh, you know, what he's saying is absolutely substantiated by the Old Testament Scriptures, by God Himself. And so, as he stands up to address them, he, he pleads for them just to listen to him. There's just something he has to share about Jesus, and his first affirmation about Jesus is that God, and this is a, t a technical sort of way to say it. God, God accredited Jesus. Like a, a, uh, if I were to, a, a king were to send an ambassador, you know, there would be a letter accrediting the ambassador as like, this is my representative. And saying that God accredited or attested to Jesus as Messiah with mighty works and wonders and signs. And uh, in some ways, he's piling up synonyms here because Really, what's in view are the miracles of Jesus. He's saying uh, the miracles of Jesus are proof that Jesus is the Messiah. But in another way, he's trying, I think there's some nuance where mighty works are Jesus displaying power. Wonders are the types of signs that Jesus performed prompted awe among the people who witnessed them. And then signs being those same miracles were also signs to you that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, but he's, he's looking at uh, the miracles of Jesus as a whole and saying mighty works, wonders, and signs. And remember, he's talking to a crowd, probably several people, many people in the crowd had personally witnessed a miracle of Jesus at some point over the last three years, and probably most of the people that hadn't witnessed a miracle of Jesus knew someone who had witnessed a miracle of Jesus, right? Like, these people uh, maybe didn't see a miracle of Christ personally, but uh, they definitely knew about the miracles of Jesus Christ. And Peter is asserting flatly 
that those miracles should have demonstrated to you that Jesus is Messiah. That those miracles, if it were only those miracles, are proof. That they're supernatural. That it had to come from God and that God certainly wouldn't have empowered a fraud to act as an imposter. Why would God do that? That Jesus doing these things is proof that the power of God is behind him, and given all that we know about the character of God, God would only empower Christ to do what Christ did if Christ were Messiah. God did all of this in your midst, in front of your eyes, through Jesus Christ. Like, if, if you didn't already know the conclusion of the sermon, it'd be pretty obvious where he was going. Jesus is Messiah. And then, you know, if, if, that, if that were a bit of a jab, the hook, right? Like, this punch would hit hard. This Jesus, the, the one who God accredited as the Messiah, and what he does here is, I think, brilliant. He's doing two things with this. Uh, number one, he's pointing to Jesus' death as further proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Like, on top of the miracles, not only, uh, not only are there the miracles affirming that Jesus is the Messiah, but Jesus dying is further proof that he's the Messiah. And he's going to point out that like, because the Old Testament indicated to us that Jesus would have to die, like this is evidence piece number two that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. And at the same time, he's assuring them that Jesus' death wasn't accidental, it wasn't God calling an audible, that Jesus' death was always the plan of God. That God foreknew that Jesus would die. And so on the one hand, he's holding up the absolute sovereignty of God and saying that in the sovereignty of God, Jesus' death is proof further that Jesus is the Messiah. And at the same time, he's not allowing them to use Jesus's, or God's foreknowledge of Jesus' death as their like absolution that they didn't really have anything to do with it. He says very clearly, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. So the commentary there is probably with lawless men, he has in mind the Romans because they're lawless, at least from a Jew's perspective, they're lawless men. And the you is the crowd in front of him, the Jewish crowd in front of him. So he's saying, you uh, crowd are responsible for Jesus's crucifixion, even though you're not the ones that hung him up on the cross. You used the lawless men, the Romans, to crucify him, but the Romans only crucified him because the Jews demanded it, because you were calling out for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so, even as in 23, he's asserting that God is absolutely sovereign and that it was God's plan for Jesus to die, he's making it clear at the very beginning that God's plan doesn't absolve you of your moral responsibility for Jesus' death. And, uh, you know, that probably prompts all kinds of questions, like how can 
God be entirely sovereign and we be responsible for the things we do or don't do. But uh, maybe mercifully to me, Luke doesn't get into all that here, so I'm not going to get into all that here. Uh, I, they would have accepted both of those truths, and Luke doesn't dive into uh, how both of those things fit together. He just makes it clear that both of these things are true. God is sovereign over everything, and people are absolutely morally responsible for what they do or do not do. Right? And so uh, the charge is kind of worked in early, even before he's built his case, that they bear moral responsibility for Jesus' death. And then he continues to build on his pile of evidence uh, a, a third thing. God raised him up. Death did not hold him. It was not possible for him to be held by death. So then the miracles and signs are his proof to the crowd that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, Jesus' death is proof that he is the Messiah that God foretold, and he'll make that clear in a moment as he quotes David. And then Jesus' resurrection is further proof that Jesus is absolutely and definitely the Messiah that God promised. That no one else has ever rose triumphant over death. Jesus' conquering death is absolute proof that Jesus is Messiah. And then to make the point more clear, he quotes uh, Psalm 16, which probably the crowd wouldn't have really thought of a messianic psalm, like predicting Jesus' death. And so when he folds in Psalm 110, I think it will help, it's to help the crowd understand uh, Psalm 16 better. But as they read Psalm 16, likely, they would have thought, this is just David talking about David, which uh, in some sense David was talking about David. In another sense, he seems to be looking forward to Christ. Peter certainly understands him to be looking forward to Christ. But if you're not familiar with David and his Psalms, very typically, David is in a very distressing situation. He cries out to God for help. God helps him, and then David sings God's praises. And so Psalm 16, very similar. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken, and therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. Right? David is singing the Lord's praises, and there seems to be some hint that no circumstance could shake David's determination to praise the Lord but he continues, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption, right? And verse 27 is uh, definitely the verse that Peter's interpretation hangs on. Probably they would have said prior to the sermon, Peter's sermon, well, that's hyperbolic. He's just saying that nothing is going to stop me from praising God. But, you know, what are we saying here? Uh, David continues, you have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. And probably at that point, they would have said, well, yeah, he's looking forward to some ultimate resurrection, right? Like the, uh, the Pharisees would have even agreed that, like, well, yeah, there is going to be a general resurrection eventually, and God's people will never be entirely and finally separated from God's presence. So, there's a, a general resurrection hope here, but 
This isn't really about the Messiah. Uh, but Peter goes on to say, like, uh, you no, know, uh, verse 27 is absolutely about Jesus Christ. The Holy One not seeing corruption is about the Messiah. And he does something that nobody can argue with to further make his point. Now, I say to you with confidence that our patriarch David is dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Right? That certainly there is a sense in what David was saying is true, that nothing could separate him from the desire to sing God's praise, provided he was alive. But he's not. And, and he walks a careful line here like, by calling David a patriarch. You know, he's putting him on class. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve. Right? Like, he's no disrespect to David, remarkable guy, but he's dead. And I'm not just telling you that. Uh, we know where his tomb's at. We can all walk over there right now. He's still in it. David was a king. David was probably our best king. David is a patriarch of the Jewish people. But David is dead. But he was a prophet. And he uttered those words as a prophet, knowing that God had made a promise to him. He's talking about the Davidic covenant, that God would set one of David's descendants on the throne forever. That a descendant of David would reign supreme forever. And Peter is going to use this Davidic covenant to help them see that Christ is the king that was promised to David. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, and he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Right? So the implication there is that David's flesh ultimately did see corruption. David went to the tomb. David rotted in the tomb. We're not going to find anything other than bones in David's tomb. And so when it says the Holy One will not see corruption, it's clearly not David we're talking about. It's somebody else. David knew that resurrection had to figure into God's plan because if a king in his line were going to reign forever, death would have to be defeated. And then he comes... <coughs> To the point, this Jesus, who God raised up, and we all saw it. But there is a one who has defeated death, a descendant of David who rise, rose triumphant from the grave. His body did not rot in the grave. He walked out of Hades and now reigns supreme in the line of David. We know that he rose from the dead. We all are witnesses. He's been talking about the 11 standing behind him. We all saw it. And now his fourth and maybe final proof that Jesus is in fact Messiah. Look, not only did he do all those miracles and signs while he's alive, not only did he die exactly as God predicted, not only did he rise from the dead, but in his risen state, he ascended to heaven. He is God. 
And at God's right hand, He poured out His Spirit on us. That's what you're witnessing today. You are seeing proof that the risen Christ is now the ascended Christ and reigns supreme. What These things that you're witnessing, these things that you think are inexplicable, are proof that Jesus is God. And David told you this was going to happen. Quoting 1.10, he says, which, uh, if you're familiar with the Gospel, Jesus also quotes Psalm 110 in a discussion with the Pharisees about whether or not uh, ultimately he could be the one, right? And he quotes David as saying, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And Jesus' point, and Peter's, is in what they all would have understood clearly to be a messianic psalm, is God is going to say, to someone, a descendant of David, sit at my right hand, take the position of authority, and I am going to make the enemies your footstool. And, uh, you know, your Bible maybe indicates this with different typeface, but the Lord is like the Lord proper, like God's name, right? And my Lord is the generic Lord that you would call, I don't like a king or some dignitary, or somebody important, right? Like, part of what Jesus argues ultimately, part of what Peter's arguing here, I think, is uh, like David, there's no way David is calling one of his descendants, his great-great-great-grandchild, my Lord, unless that person has like real actual authority over David, right? Like, I think it's not unlike, like, I would never call one of my sons sir uh, unless they were in trouble, right? Like, they might call me sir if they're trying to get out of trouble, but I'm never going to call one of my sons sir. Is like, sir, like, what are we talking about? Like, son, right? Like, uh, my Lord is highlighting the respect that David is giving to him and uh, that God says to my, David is the my, Lord, sit at my right hand. So, essentially, the point Jesus and Peter are both making is, look, David would only be saying this if the person that God is speaking to is so clearly above David that the only sign, like the only way he could refer to him is Lord. And if we're all going to say David is the greatest of all kings, then this has to be like a king of kings to earn the title Lord from David. Right? That God says to Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Jesus is, again, not just Jesus' ascension is proof that Jesus is Messiah, but now it's like he's saying, David told you to expect Jesus' ascension. That Jesus did uh, was raised to God's right hand, and in that position of authority, he sent the Spirit, which you're now witnessing today, and David told you to expect this very thing. So, let everybody know for certain that Jesus is both the Lord and Christ. That there is no question that Jesus is the Messiah that God promised, he says. And then that little hanger on. This Jesus, oh yeah, remember the one you crucified.
And, I mean, you think about, like, being a person that you're... you ever been in a scenario or witnessed a scenario where somebody said something kind of flippant to somebody who they didn't really know who they were? Maybe like new job scenario or something. And like, don't you know who that is? That's the owner of the company. And they're like, I said, what? To the owner of the company? You know, like, oh, oh. Like, and this is a like, oh, oh moment for the crowd. Like, Jesus is the Messiah. Oh, like, that's the one we were yelling crucify him about 53 days ago. Like, this, this would have to be a devastating punch to the crowd. Like, if they followed what Peter's saying, and they recognize what they did with God's promised Messiah, like, it has to be shock and then utter depression. Like, there is no way I can get out of what I've just done. Like, this is it. And, and Luke says they were cut to the heart. Like, they got what Peter was saying. Like, they, they understood it. It pierced them to the soul. They cry out to Peter and the rest of the apostles' brothers, like, please help me. What on earth can I do? If everything that you just said is true, what on earth can be done? And Peter's response to them is repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And here's where I want to stop and make some comment, because I think probably there's incredibly high probability that many of us uh, struggle with this one. Uh, For years, I struggled with this one. A lot of years. Uh, Right, And, you know, the first time you read this, I think it's probably natural if you have some exposure to church or churches or to Christians to think, like, that's a weird answer. Like, you know, every time I've ever heard people talk about the gospel or share the gospel and, you know, it gets anywhere close to this ground, uh, the response is almost always, well, just believe in Jesus. Just believe in Jesus. Just trust in Jesus. Uh, maybe pray this prayer. Right? Like, it's always to the, to the positive. Believe in Jesus. And I want to be very careful about saying what I say next. And, uh, you know, if I didn't already think that I wanted to be very careful about what I was saying next. Uh, in first hour, when everybody raised their eyebrows simultaneously, I, was, I need to be very careful when I say, uh, I, can, I can't do both eyebrows. Uh, uh, but in passing, I'm very thankful to be in a church where any commentary about the core of our faith prompts caution and concern. Uh, I think that what uh, that faith is very much a part of Peter's answer, but he's talking about a very particular kind of faith. 
He's not saying that they should do something other than believe when he says, repent and be baptized. He's talking about a particular kind of belief that's characterized by repentance and baptism. Or, in other words, he's not just saying, well, just, you know, believe that everything I said is just true, and as long as you assent to those facts, God's going to just forgive you. Uh, He's saying that express the kind of faith that equates to radical life transformation. Right? Like James would say later, that even the demons believe and shudder. Right? James is, I think, making it clear for us that there is a kind of faith that does not save a person. The kind of faith that the demons have. The demons assent to every fact of Jesus' life, death, resurrection. They know it was true. In fact, they witnessed it. Like, there's not a shadow of a doubt for them that it is true. In that sense, they believe. But in the sense that it has resulted in a radical reorientation of their heart, they do not believe. They only assent to facts being true. When Peter calls on the crowd to repent and be baptized, he's not just saying, assent to the truth of everything I just said to you. He's saying, submit yourselves to God. If what we're looking for, what strikes us about Peter's answer is there is not faith, I think we maybe don't entirely understand the relationship that is going to become clear through Acts between repentance and faith, right? Like if, if for my entire life before Christ, I was wholeheartedly pursuing my selfish ambition, pursuing my passions, pursuing the things that I imagined would make me happy, that is my sin, that in my coming to Christ, I repent of that sin, not meaning that I just feel sorry for it, though I do feel sorry for it, but that I turned away from it and I reoriented my entire life by the power of God's Spirit towards Christ. And so as I'm turning away from it, I'm repenting, As I'm turning towards Christ in faith, I am believing, and my turning towards Christ in faith produces a desire to obey. That that I recognize that my selfish pursuit of my sin was never going to give me the satisfaction that it promised, and it's only in obedience to God that I will experience the satisfaction that I long for, right? Like, there is absolutely Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but there's also Ephesians 2, 10, that we were created for good works. And Peter is capturing this huge dynamic with repent and be baptized, where he's not answering don't believe, but he's talking about a very specific kind of faith, a faith that means I turn away from my sin and I turn towards God with a faith that is willing to obey. And that obedience is marked at least by my obedience to Christ's first command to be baptized, right? My turning away from sin and turning towards Christ is evidenced by my willing, willingness publicly to affirm my faith in Christ even as it means for these Jews, probably, uh, incredible social pressure to recant. 
that, that a person who has that kind of trust in Christ, the, uh, the trust in Christ that leads to turning away from sin and uh, obedience to Christ, uh, receives the forgiveness for sin. And I think there's a lot of things here we should know. Number one, uh, you know, we live in an age where well-meaning Christians are telling us that the, you know, the reason that uh, people don't accept the gospel is because it's not all that palatable. You know, like a conversation that starts with you're a rotten sinner probably uh, isn't going to go well. And while I don't know that I'd start a conversation with you're a rotten sinner, at the same time, I think we should note that as we go through Acts, we're going to see some dissimilarities between the way the apostles speak to Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles, right? Like here, they're not, they don't start with creation like they're going to with Gentiles, right? He starts with the assumption that they all know who God is. In fact, they're very familiar with the Old Testament, and he builds his sermon off their understanding of the Old Testament, right? Like, he does think about who he's talking to and tailor the message to who he's talking to. And at the same time that there are some significant dissimilarities between the sermons through Acts, there are some incredible similarities. Like, it does not matter who he's talking to. It doesn't matter if uh, he is talking to the very people who crucified Christ, he is going to point out that they have to repent. That an insistence, not only that God grants forgiveness, but that we have to understand why we need God's forgiveness is apparent through the book. And that for, for us, I think it's important uh, to know uh, that while we would wisely consider what the person we're talking to knows about God, what they don't know about God, and tailor the way we share the gospel uh, with them based on what they know and what they don't know, at the same time, we have no freedom whatsoever to strip the gospel of any part that we think is offensive. That our responsibility is to give the whole gospel, always. And even if it's going to be, in our minds, offensive. And no, I think probably that it's the offense that really cuts them to the heart. And even then, I think it's important for us to recognize that he is talking to the city where Christ was crucified. Presumably, a lot of this people, a lot of the people in this crowd were the same people who were shouting, crucify him a few weeks earlier, right? Like, he doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, look, everybody, for those of you that weren't in Jerusalem, say, five weeks ago, uh, this offer is for you, but some of you did the worst possible thing that anybody could imagine, and this offer of salvation is not for you. Right? He makes it, I think, abundantly clear that this promise is for you. Everybody in the crowd, you, for your children, 
for all who are far off, for everyone whom the Lord calls to Himself. That there is not a person in the crowd who is exempted from this offer. It is for everyone. That is, there isn't a sin. There isn't an amount of sin. There is nothing that would prevent a person from coming to God in Christ. That in Christ, any and all people could be forgiven if they would simply repent and believe. And the the nuance uh, is, I think, partially built on uh, the fact that the verb we saw, repent, and the verb be baptized, are plural and singular, right? So it's as if he's saying, everybody in this crowd is in exact same condition. You all need repentance. And at the same time, he makes baptism singular, and I think emphasize the point that, but we can't do this as a crowd. We all have to do this as individuals, that every person has to come to Christ individually in order to be saved. We can't repent and be baptized as a people. We repent and be baptized as individuals, and that repentance and baptism brings us into community. And he continues, Luke says, he doesn't tell us what he says, but summarizes it by saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And they all would have heard him saying that and thought, I think, immediately of Deuteronomy 32, where Moses says something incredibly similar, right? Like, wisely pointing them back to the fact that this isn't the first time that the people of God have had other people of God leading them astray, that uh, he has, I think, in this sermon, made the gospel clear to them, but also made it clear that even as the Levites, the priests, and the scribes are saying, don't listen to the apostles, they don't know what they're talking about, Jesus is a flash in the pan, they'll be forgotten, that those people might say that uh, the apostles aren't to be listened to, but it's in fact those people who should not be listened to because everything that Peter is saying is cast in the light of the Old Testament, right? That he is speaking God's words after him, that Christ is absolutely the Messiah that God promised, and if the people who oppose Christ have issue, they don't have issue with us, the apostles, they have issue with God who sent Christ the Messiah. And as he makes this point, Luke concludes that those who received his word were baptized, 3,000 of them. So these 120 are waiting in the house for the coming of the Spirit. They don't know what to do. They don't know when he'll come. They're simply praying that the Spirit comes and prompts the scene, empowers Peter to deliver the sermon, and 3,000 people respond in repentance and belief. And it's uh, kind of interesting to me sometimes how like the, the first four verses of chapter 2 are treated like the work of the Spirit, and the last few verses of the chapter are treated like the work of the Spirit, which we'll talk about next week, 42 through 47, but highlight uh, the way that the Holy Spirit was at work in this nascent church, and then Peter's sermon is just kind of stuck in the middle 
But I think verse 41 makes it abundantly clear that all of chapter 2 is the Spirit works. Spirit's working. Right? The, the, the Spirit working in the miracle of Pentecost is absolutely the Spirit's work. The Spirit, Spirit inspiring Peter to speak is absolutely the Spirit's working. And even as Peter's speaking, the Spirit was stirring in the hearts of 3,000 souls and their repentance and belief is evidence of the Spirit's working. And then those 3,120 people living together in unity, praising God, fellowshipping, praying, giving themselves to the apostles' teaching is evidence of the Spirit's working. Right? That chapter 2 is just a taste of all of the different ways the Spirit works in the life of the church, and it was all done because Christ, sitting at the right hand of God, sent him for the church. And so, as we kind of come to the end of chapter 2, I'll talk more next week about the way that the Spirit's work informs our life together as a church, but I think uh, equally as uh, important, we have to understand that the Spirit informs our work as missionaries, as evangelists, right? Like, Peter's made it clear through his sermon that it's God who's calling people to himself. And as we proclaim the gospel boldly and clearly, it's ultimately the Spirit of God that is making our articulation of the gospel effective for the salvation of souls. And it's our life together as a church, just as their being together ends up drawing the attention of unbelievers. It's our life together as a church that God uses to draw other people towards Christ. That our, our fellowship, our unity, our love for one another, our willingness to use our gifts for each other's benefit, that all of the things that the Spirit gives us are beneficial for God's people in and of themselves. And at the same time, and just as it was at Pentecost, they are also beneficial in the sense that they demonstrate to the watching world the power of God's Spirit in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That uh, and we, we should think wisely about how we speak the gospel but we also have to be mindful of the fact that our fellowship in the Spirit is verification of the message that we preach. That our life together isn't something we can take or leave. It's an absolutely essential part of our evangelistic task. And so, I would... I would encourage you to do a couple things. I think, number one, uh, uh, for a long time, I I, was, I was I knew the gospel well, but I was not saved. And I don't think it was because I lacked remorse for my sin. Very much, at least at times, uh, was 
sorrowful over my sin. Uh, I'm terrified of hell. And like looking back, I think uh, that I almost believed. Um, it's a, I guess it's unimportant to say uh, how I specifically misunderstood what the gospel actually is. And it's probably more important for me to say, like, do you think you have this kind of faith? Not, not the kind of faith that clings to whatever the world is holding out as satisfaction and Jesus, and I can have both. But the kind of faith that prompts a person to absolutely turn away from sin and turn towards Jesus Christ in obedience. That, that I want to be clear that it's not my act of turning away from sin that saves me. It's not my willingness to obey Christ that saves me, that, that neither one of those things save me. It is real trust in Jesus Christ as the payment for sin that saves me. And at the same time that it's true, but my assurance is built on the fact that that kind of faith true saving faith is evidenced by a willingness to turn away from sin and turn towards Christ. And so, do you have that kind of faith? And as we continue uh, As we continue to uh, press forward as a church to encourage others to believe, uh, I think a second question that we all have to be asking ourselves is, uh, is that the gospel that we're preaching? The gospel of Peter, the gospel of Christ. Uh, a gospel that counts all dis encourages all disciples to count the cost that uh, we could we could spend a lot of time and energy preaching something that is almost the gospel and potentially that is time and energy wasted and souls lost that uh, we need to be sure that the gospel that we are holding out to others is the gospel the apostles held out to us, the gospel that Jesus himself proclaimed, the recognition that all are lost in sin apart from Christ and that it's only through Christ that a person can be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you, God, for what is evidenced at Pentecost, God, that uh, 
God, your grace is evident in your sending of Christ. Your grace is evident in the countless ways that you've affirmed Christ to be your son. And that your grace is evidenced in the fact that you gave your only son to be the propitiation for our sin. God, we pray that you would help us to see our own sin clearly. God, that you would help us to walk away from it. God, to realize that there is no satisfaction in it. God, that we would be people who would cling to Christ and Christ alone. God, that uh, our souls would be satisfied in Him and in seeing the joy and hope, the peace that we have in Christ. God, that you would use us to draw others to Him as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.